Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February 2nd, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. South Africa confirms five countries' accession to BRICS. Trump's steel dossier suit is dismissed. The EU approves a 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine swap hundreds of prisoners. Dozens in Jordan are targeted by the Pegasus spyware. Crypto exchange FTX agrees to repay investors following its collapse. Disney's lawsuit against Ron DeSantis is thrown out. Protesting farmers bring their grievances to an EU summit. The U.S. House passes a $78 billion tax relief bill. And eBay settles a $59 million suit over its sales of pill-making tools. News from South Africa as five new nations agree to join BRICS. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, The Print, The Japan Times, Business Tech, United News of India, and Africa News. South Africa's Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor has confirmed that Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Ethiopia, Iran, and Egypt have accepted the invitation to join the BRICS group of emerging economies from January 1st that was extended to them along with Argentina at a summit last year. The bloc accepted the new Argentine government's decision not to join BRICS despite the previous administration's successful membership application, the minister added at a press conference on Wednesday. According to Pandor, 34 countries have expressed their interest in joining BRICS to Russia, which has assumed the chairmanship of the group from South Africa. In August, the BRICS core members, China, Russia, Brazil, India, and South Africa, agreed on expanding the group at a summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. The bloc, Pandor said, is creating a so-called BRICS partner country model to integrate 17 nations not admitted as full members. To bypass what the minister described as an unfair and costly dollar-based international monetary system, a framework is also being developed to allow members to use their national currencies in trade between BRICS countries. On Tuesday, the governor of the Russian Central Bank, Elvira Nabiolina, said that the group's chair, Russia, will propose several crucial initiatives to improve cooperation between the BRICS countries. These measures include promoting the mutual recognition of credit ratings and combating money laundering. Including the new members, the BRICS Economic Group boasts a total population of some 3.5 billion people and a combined GDP of more than $28.5 trillion, representing around 28% of the global economy. The next BRICS annual summit is set to take place in the Russian city of Kazan in October. Our first narrative spin of the show is a pro-establishment narrative from Forbes. Despite all the hype surrounding BRICS and its alleged growing global influence, the group is unlikely to surpass the G7 as the world's most powerful economic bloc in the years to come. The high-flying vision of reshaping the supposedly unjust U.S.-led global order will fail due to the group's political, economic, and cultural fragmentation. For example, it's doubtful that the world's largest democracy, India, will accept the growing dominance of autocratic China. Growth alone is no guarantee of success, and BRICS has no solution to its founding defect. And here's the establishment critical narrative from The Hill. The BRICS expansion is further proof that the multipolar world order is taking shape, and that the bloc is the driving force behind this trend. 
An increasing number of global South countries are rejecting the West's effort to impose its political and economic will on them. It's precisely from its heterogeneity that the BRICS draws its strength and overcomes the differences and disputes between countries such as India and China. BRICS growth illustrates the attractiveness of this concept in contrast to the West's unipolar model dominated by the U.S. And from time to time, we have nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 60% chance that any new member will leave BRICS before 2035. A U.K. judge dismisses Trump's case against the Steele dossier's creator. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, the Associated Press, the Independent, and BBC News. A London High Court judge on Thursday dismissed a lawsuit filed by U.S. President filed by former U.S. President Donald Trump against Orbis Business Intelligence, a company founded by British spy Christopher Steele. Trump argued the claims in the notorious Steele dossier were false and harmed his reputation. In 2017, BuzzFeed published the dossier, which alleged Trump engaged in perverted sexual behavior in Russia and accused him of paying bribes to Russian officials to advance his business interests. Trump called all of the allegations wholly untrue. Judge Karen Stain didn't offer an opinion on the validity of Trump's claims, but she said there were no compelling reasons to allow Trump's lawsuit to go to trial. She went on to say that Trump allowed many years to elapse before filing his complaint and that the claim for compensation and or damages is bound to fail. The lawsuit argued that Steele's 2016 dossier, in addition to being false and defamatory, violated Trump's data protection rights and sought to use the UK's data protection laws to sue Orbis. Trump said that he couldn't have sued earlier due to time restraints as president. Steele, the former head of the Russia desk from Britain's secret intelligence service, known as MI6, compiled a series of memos in 2016, claiming that Trump had taken part in so-called sex parties and engaged in sexual activities with prostitutes in Moscow. Stain said that despite the content of the dossier, Orbis cannot be blamed for simply possessing the material that was later leaked by BuzzFeed. The dossier was funded by Hillary Clinton's Democratic Party, and in 2022, the U.S. Federal Election Commission fined Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign $8,000 and the Democratic National Committee $105,000 for concealing the funding of this report. However, the Federal Election Commission threw out a complaint against the British spy. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with an anti-Trump narrative from Business Insider. Whether he's the plaintiff or the defendant, Donald Trump continues to lose every legal battle he's engaged in. The former president complained continuously about the Steele dossier, yet he waited many years to file any sort of legal action. Judge Stain correctly called out the frivolous suit and his passivity, but that doesn't end Trump's legal woes by a long shot. This ruling is just an omen for future Trump legal losses. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from Daily Caller. Everyone knows that the Steele dossier was a slanderous fabrication paid for by Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party that sought to undermine Trump before he even took office. Even a biased judge couldn't refute the heinous lies that the dossier contained simply dismissing Trump's case because he let too much time elapse. The judge also used various legal technicalities to throw out the case and deprive Trump of having a legitimate hearing. Regardless of the outcome, the Steele dossier exposed the corruption of Trump's enemies. 
And here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 60% chance that Donald Trump will be convicted of at least one crime in his federal court cases before the end of 2024. One thing that sticks out to me in this story is that BuzzFeed used to be like a huge deal, like a legitimate source of information. I Mm. feel like I haven't heard about BuzzFeed in years now. I can't Um, believe that's six years ago. Wow. For me, we got we got our dog, Brownie Chocolate Lab. We got her in 2016. And ever since then, I've been in a time warp of of what like that was the last time that anything made sense. Yes. You start having children. COVID happens. Yep. More and then children. Forget about it. Yep. And then yeah, life is over, basically. And that's like like when when Trevor Noah announced last year that he was getting off the Daily Show. In my mind, I'm like, I'm just gonna give him a chance when he uh when he gets his feet under him. Well, he's already been there, been there for a long time and left. And Are the time warp's still come going out of by that? the way. I was no, gonna say, I, no, I don't know. it's still no. How are we just, getting out of this? Well, I mean, you'll eventually <laughs> climb into a coffin, and that's then you can Oh, rest. okay. <laughs> The EU approves a 50 billion euro Ukraine aid package. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Politico, European Conservative, Al Jazeera, BBC News, and the Wall Street Journal. All 27 EU countries approved on Thursday a new 50 billion euro aid package to Ukraine that will run through 2027 as part of its seven-year budget review after Hungary's Viktor Orban dropped his veto-blocking funds for Kyiv. This comes as European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, joined by the leaders of France, Germany, and Italy, held a closed-door meeting with the Hungarian leader, which was later widened to include other leaders. They reportedly convinced Orban with three conditions. The implementation of the package will be annually reviewed by the Commission and subject to a midterm debate on the highest level. And, if needed, the Council can request another budget review in two years. Additionally, they agreed to guarantee that the Commission will evaluate the rule of law in Hungary in good faith. Kiev said on Thursday that it expects to receive in March the first installment in the amount of 4.5 billion euros from the EU funding package, which is aimed at helping Ukraine finance its budget deficits over the next four years. This follows an announcement earlier this week that the EU would be able to reach only 52% of the 1 million ammunition rounds it had promised to deliver to Ukraine by March. Late last year, European leaders agreed to open EU membership talks with Kyiv. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Republicans in Congress have blocked the Biden administration's proposed $60 billion aid package to Ukraine, which is grappling with a financial shortfall exceeding $40 billion this year. Kyiv reportedly expects that Brussels and Washington would cover some $30 billion of the gap. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the European Parliament. The Ukrainian people have desperately waited for this lifeline for months, so thankfully every state leader within the bloc finally took a stand to offer their support. Not only does this funding help protect Ukraine, but it also helps ensure Russia can't threaten European security further to the West. As compromises were made that benefit every party involved, the EU can rest assured that it's impenetrably unified against Russian aggression. And here's the establishment critical narrative from TASS. The EU's performative, albeit somewhat financially significant, commitment to Kyiv will do nothing for the Ukrainian people, and even less for its own citizens. 
For all their talk about Russia threatening to move further west than Ukraine, the EU and NATO have only seen their militaries shrink in size and funding. This war has been, and will continue to be, between Moscow and Kiev, and Russia is still winning. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 29% chance that Ukraine will join the EU before the year 2030. Russia and Ukraine complete the first prisoner swap since last week's plane crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Mitro Lubinitz Facebook page, CBS, and the Associated Press. Amid tensions and distrust following the crash of a Russian transport plane last week, which Russia blamed on Ukraine and said had been carrying 65 Russian POWs, both nations completed their first prisoner swap since the incident on Wednesday. Russia's defense ministry said that each country returned 195 POWs. However, shortly thereafter, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said 207 Ukrainians were returned home. There was no explanation for the discrepancy and the true figure of how many prisoners were exchanged could not be independently confirmed. The countries have routinely conducted prisoner exchanges throughout the conflict. However, the fate of future swaps had come into question following the planes coming down in Russia's Belgorod region. Commenting on the exchange after it was completed, Russian President Vladimir Putin said, We will not stop the exchanges. We have to bring our own guys back home. Meanwhile, Dmitro Lubinitz, Ukraine's ombudsman for human rights, said on social media that it was the 50th exchange of its type, adding that 3,035 Ukrainians had now been repatriated. Since then, Russia's investigative committee, which is probing how the plane went down, said on Friday that it was able to establish that the plane was shot down by two U.S.-made Patriot missiles, stating that a total of 116 fragments from the weapons were discovered near the scene. It listed a number of serial numbers said to be discovered on the fragments, alleging they are a match to the Raytheon-made weapons. The claims have not been independently verified at this stage. Thank you, Scott. These spins begin with a pro-Ukraine narrative from Ukranska Pravda. In this latest exchange, Ukraine was able to return 207 of its defenders home. Ukraine will always do everything in its power to ensure that those held in Russian captivity will be returned. And the pro-Russian narrative from TASS. Despite Ukraine's illegal and terroristic actions in bringing down a Russian military plane, Moscow will continue conducting prisoner exchanges as it's important that its people are returned home. 195 prisoners were returned in the latest exchange. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 20% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In Jordan, over 30 people are reportedly targeted by Pegasus Software. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. News & World Report, The Record, ABC News, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. According to a recent investigation, over 30 people in Jordan, including journalists, lawyers, and human rights activists, were hacked with the Israeli-made Pegasus spyware. In a report released Thursday, digital rights organization Access Now, along with Citizen Lab, a cybersecurity watchdog associated with the University of Toronto, documented a number of Pegasus cases in Jordan that they say point to widespread hacking and a targeted surveillance campaign. According to the report, the hacking took place from 2019 until September 2023 and used spyware made by Israel's NSO group. 
The report did not detail who was responsible for the hacking and did not blame Jordan's government. People targeted by Pegasus hacking include Human Rights Watch's Deputy Director for the Middle East, Adam Kugel, Hiba Zayedin, who is the Human Rights Watch's senior researcher for Jordan and Syria, and Jordanian human rights lawyer Hala Ahed. Nearly half of the people targeted by the spyware were journalists or media workers. The report documented 35 cases of people who were targeted with the software, but the authors believe the number is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the use of Pegasus spyware in Jordan, and that the true number of victims is likely much higher. NSO, which is closely regulated by the Israeli Ministry of Defense, says that it only sells its products to vetted intelligence and law enforcement agencies and complies with all applicable laws and regulations. NSO's Pegasus software, when deployed successfully, allows for an operator to fully control a mobile device, allowing the operator access to emails, phone calls, and encrypted messages, as well as allowing the operator to turn the device into a remote listening device. Thanks, Melissa. Al Jazeera brings us the establishment-critical narrative. NSO may claim that it only sells its products to properly vetted intelligence and law enforcement agencies, but the truth is that it's selling spyware to foreign governments fully aware that they will likely abuse the software. There are many well-documented cases of spyware being used for politically motivated invasions of privacy to surveil human rights activists and journalists. There needs to be more oversight for spyware companies so that this dystopian business does not continue to happen. And here's a pro-establishment narrative from the Council on Foreign Relations. As one of the globe's most powerful cyber weapons, Pegasus has been utilized by governments worldwide to thwart terrorist attacks, fight organized crime, and even take down a child trafficking ring. As technology has improved, criminals have been able to hide their shady dealings. But this spyware changes the game. While NSO cannot entirely control what its products are used for, the company has terminated some contracts in the past over reported abuses and remains committed to keeping its software in the right hands. This is ultimately a force for good, even if some rare abuses get media coverage. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 1.6% chance that at least one of Egypt, Jordan, or Lebanon will be at war with Israel on May 31st, 2024. FTX will repay billions but won't revive their company. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Verge, Daily Mail, Coinpedia, and The Guardian. Cryptocurrency exchange FTX on Wednesday announced it won't rebuild the company and will instead liquidate all assets and use the funds to repay customers who lost money after FTX's November 2022 bankruptcy. Company lawyer Andy Diedrich said FTX had already recovered $7 billion in lost assets. FTX, whose founder and former chief executive officer Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted of fraud in federal court last year previously reported having 36,000 claims, adding up to roughly $16 billion. Last year, though, it said it would only be able to repay 90%. FTX's downfall began when it lacked the $8 billion required on the balance sheet of a separate company owned by Bankman-Fried, Alameda Research. Customers began pulling funds, with crypto company Binance subsequently pulling all of its assets. The price of FTX's own cryptocurrency, called FTT, increased by more than 11% following the payback announcement, 
However, it had gone down by 30% over the past day and is now valued at around $1.87. Bankman-Fried's sentencing hearing is set for U.S. District Courts March 28th. Those were the facts. Here are the narrative spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative from Bloomberg. This announcement is a win for the victims of the FTX scam. The law clearly states that debtors must receive compensation based on the date of bankruptcy. The government has convicted these fraudsters and forced them to find the money to repay their customers. Plus, Bankman-Fried will probably wind up behind bars. The establishment critical narrative comes from Unlimited Hangout. The potential for victims to recoup some funds shouldn't overshadow that Alameda Research was also linked to multiple sketchy banks whose business dealings seem to have been inconveniently overlooked by regulators. There must be as much scrutiny of the corporate government cooperation in this case as there has been of Bankman Freed. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that Bankman Freed will be sentenced to at least 287 months in prison before January 1st, 2026. A judge dismisses Disney's lawsuit against Ron DeSantis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NPR Online News, USA Today, BBC News, Reuters, and The Daily Beast. A federal judge has dismissed Walt Disney Parks and Resorts' lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other GOP lawmakers, ruling that the plaintiff lacked standing to sue the governor and his oversight board. Disney had filed a First Amendment federal lawsuit in 2023 after Florida's legislature dissolved its self-governing status of a special tax district and gave its control to the DeSantis-appointed board. The entertainment giant claimed the defendants had retaliated against it for exercising its right to free speech and criticizing DeSantis-backed legislation, which sought to limit discussions of gender identity and sexual orientation in classrooms. However, Judge Alan Windsor, a Trump nominee, dismissed Disney's free speech claims, stating a law can't be ruled unconstitutional based on the subjective, illegitimate motivation of the lawmakers who passed it. Judge Windsor also ruled that the company not only failed to establish that DeSantis has actual control over the newly formed Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, but also struggled to articulate an injury caused by the state's Secretary of Commerce. Meanwhile, Disney has indicated it may appeal Wednesday's ruling, arguing Judge Windsor's decision would give license to states to weaponize their official powers. Diametrically opposed political narratives on this story, starting with the Democratic narrative from New York Times. It's clear that DeSantis and his allies had teamed up to violate Disney's First Amendment right to free speech, threaten its business, and hurt it financially for its criticism of GOP lawmakers' regressive and reactionary don't-say-gay law. This ruling sets a dangerous precedent and opens up the floodgates for speech suppression. Bart brings us a Republican narrative. The state law stripping Disney of more than five decades of autonomy over the Special Development District wasn't unconstitutional. Disney may own the land in the district, but doesn't have a right to run its own government, make decisions without consulting the state officials, or be placed above the law. Disney's woke agenda just didn't fly here. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 2% chance that Ron DeSantis will become U.S. president by 2029. Protesting farmers converge at the EU summit in Brussels. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Express UK, Euronews, Reuters, and the Associated Press. 
On Thursday, hundreds of protesting farmers angry over rising costs, complicated climate change rules, and red tape drove their tractors to EU headquarters in Brussels during an EU summit. They reportedly threw firecrackers, eggs, and beer bottles at police during their demonstration. The farmers arrived in groups overnight, entering Brussels early in the morning in freezing temperatures, culminating their weeks-long protest. On their way to Brussels' Luxembourg Square, some wrote, Ursula, we are here, along the Paris-Brussels motorway, a reference to European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. The hundreds of farmers in their tractors were asking for imports to be regulated, the same as European-grown agriculture, as well as the simplification of agricultural and environmental regulations. In response to the protests, which included failed attempts to tear down barriers outside the European Parliament, Parliament President Roberta Metsola said, We hear you and see you. Von der Leyen and Belgium Prime Minister Alexander de Croo also said they would meet with the European Farmers' Lobby Copa Kogeka. The European Commission has also proposed limiting agricultural exports from Ukraine and loosening environmental regulations on fallow land. However, as the protests have continued, blocked roads have led to some supply chain issues. In France, for example, one transportation and logistics executive said delays have cost transportation and logistics firms 30% of revenue over the past 10 days. France, Belgium, Italy, and other nations have witnessed rural uprisings in recent weeks. French police arrested 91 farmers in Paris on Wednesday after protesters drove into Europe's biggest wholesale food market. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll start with a progressive narrative from The Guardian. Folding in the face of angry and violent farmers shows a lack of political will on the part of European politicians. Fearing the far right's alarming rise across Europe, incumbent leaders have shown no inclination to take substantial steps to reasonably inform the farmers, let alone tackle their aggression. This is hypocrisy at its finest and a serious threat to the environment. Counter that with this conservative narrative from European Conservative. The EU has done anything but cave to the demands of these farmers. The protesters driving their tractors across Europe are still angry because their leaders are pushing ludicrous policies like banning the use of fertilizer and forcing land to go fallow. These policies aren't about saving the environment, but rather introducing a Soviet-style system of control over the people who ensure food is on the table. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 27% chance of the EU meeting its 2030 targets under the Paris Climate Treaty. The U.S. House passes a $79 billion bipartisan tax bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the House clerk, Congress, and the Associated Press. By a 357 to 70 vote margin, the U.S. House of Representatives on Wednesday passed the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act 2024. 188 Democrats and 169 Republicans voted for the bill, with 23 Democrats and 47 Republicans respectively voting against the legislation. The bill allows an increase in maximum refundable child credit for tax returns from $1,400 in the 2022 tax year to $1,800 in 2023, $1,900 in 2024, and $2,000 in 2025. Top-line child tax credit will also be adjusted as per cost-of-living inflation. 
The bill delays the date of required tax deductions for domestic research or experimental costs until December 31, 2025, while also extending applications concerning earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, or EBITDA, to taxable years between December 31, 2023 and January 1, 2026. Taiwan residents will also see a relaxation of U.S. taxation rules, including a reduction of withholding taxes on income from U.S. sources from 30% to 10% for interest and royalties and 15% for dividends, respectively. Further policies include the exclusion of East Palestine. Yes, the exclusion of East Palestine train derailment relief payments from gross income, the extension of the Taxpayer Certainty and Disaster Relief Act 2020, and the restoration of a higher low-income housing credit ceiling. The legislation in total proposes approximately $79 billion U.S. billion in tax cuts. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, described the bill as conservative pro-growth tax reform. The bill must still pass through Congress's second chamber, the Senate. Thanks, Melissa. Politico brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Despite an uncertain future in the Senate, the bill should be a much-celebrated moment of rare bipartisanship in what is usually a cagey and divided House. While some opposition to the bill inevitably remains on both sides, moderates in the House have done what many deemed impossible and bridged the political divide for the benefit of the American people. The establishment critical narrative comes from the Washington Times. Beyond its title, there's little to celebrate concerning the House's intentionally deceitful bill. Under the veil of taxation reduction, 91.5% of the bill's impact will not be found within the pockets of America's typical household. Rather, the legislation de facto expands welfare eligibility, which is harmful from a workforce and immigration perspective. Once again, Congress continues to ignore the average American citizen. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the Republican Party will maintain a majority in the House of Representatives in 2024. Our final story, eBay, to pay $59 million over the sales of drug-making tools. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, BBC News, and Reuters. Online auction site eBay on Wednesday announced a $59 million settlement with the United States Department of Justice over allegations eBay violated the Controlled Substances Act, or CSA, by allowing the sale of thousands of pill presses and encapsulating machines on its website. The government also accused eBay of allowing the sale of counterfeit molds, stamps, and dyes that are used to mimic real pharmaceuticals. In the statement, eBay denied that it was subject to the CSA and didn't admit liability. The pill presses being sold on eBay are capable of making thousands of pills per hour, with the encapsulators able to pack powder into the pill capsules. The DOJ said hundreds of customers bought the counterfeit molds and stamps. As these products are used by criminal drug makers, the DOJ argued that eBay violated the CSA by not verifying the identities of the buyers, not keeping proper records and not reporting any of the transactions to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. As part of the settlement, eBay also agreed to maintain and enhance its compliance program regarding its prohibited and restricted items policy. The settlement comes as 2022 statistics show drug overdoses accounted for 110,000 deaths in the U.S., two-thirds of which were due to synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. 
This week, Portland, Oregon declared a state emergency over its drug crisis, which has largely been caused by fentanyl. Those were the facts. Here's the final round of spins with a narrative A from the United States Department of Justice. eBay chose to settle this case because it knew it had violated several government regulations, in particular the CSA. Hopefully, this financial penalty will deter the e-commerce giant from ever placing these items for sale again. Narrative B from eBay, Inc. This settlement isn't an admission of guilt, but a way to avoid the cost of a lengthy legal battle. eBay continues to have a positive history of working voluntarily with law enforcement to take such products off its site. Customers can rest assured eBay will continue to provide safe and customer-focused service. I have a Uh, different bone to pick with eBay today. Oh, yeah? I was trying to find some, uh, for reasons that remain unclear, I'm trying to find some sunglasses that look like the ones that Kim Jong-il used to wear. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, there's real ones. It's a certain brand that he's famous for wearing, those certain weird plastic Kim Jong-il. Yeah. Uh, Not Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-il would always wear those glasses. Mm. And, uh... There's real ones you can buy online for like 700 bucks. Like they're actual designer mm. sunglasses. But okay. I thought I could find some knockoff, some something that looks like it. And eBay didn't have anything, just nothing on the internet. Oh, come on. Where did you find them? Anywhere? I didn't, I didn't find them. That's oh, the thing. Man. No so, knockoffs of Kim Jong Il. So if anyone has knockoffs of Kim Jong Il or the real thing for a reasonable price, sunglasses. <laughs> Yeah, we'll Scott give them to you at, for six twenty-five. Yeah, Scott at ImproveTheNews.org. Let me know. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, February second, twenty twenty-four. Each day, we use machine learning to read about five thousand articles from about one hundred newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.